Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. So this morning we're going to be in Lamentations 3 in the Old Testament. The last time we covered the first part of the chapter, and the message was titled Turning the Corner. And it's just, you know, Lamentations is a learning curve, learning this part of the scripture. There's a lot going on. It's a a brutal war. You can find this in your history books. The Babylonians are in charge. They invade, break down the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, It didn't have to be like that. God gave instructions to the Israelites through the prophet Jeremiah and others, and they didn't heed it. So it was a very visceral, it was a very, um, it wasn't a good situation. It wasn't a good takeover. A lot of carnage, a lot of looting, burning with fire. And you see Jeremiah trying to record all this. You know, he's, he's an intercessor. You know, he's God's prophet, but he also lived through the situation. So you see him speaking for the people. You see him speaking for himself, speaking about what he went through. He was a human being, just like anybody used by God. We're human beings. We're not super people. So we go through things too. We go through these trials. And you look at the words and lamentations, and sometimes it's difficult. Is he talking about himself? Is he talking about the Israelites? Is he talking about, you know, so you you see all these things going on. And we talked about PTSD. We talked about what people who have been through a war and traumatic situations go through. Uh, Just to kind of give you a little up-to-date of what we talked about the last time, it's very interesting how God designed the human body, the brain especially, the central nervous system. You know, we take in stimuli through sensory uh, organs and receptors, and it ends up in the thalamus. And the thalamus receives all this information. The thalamus sends the information to the amygdala. The amygdala decides whether is this a threat or is it innocuous. The amygdala sends it to the hippocampus. Now, this is all going on in the brain, right? The hippocampus will assign, if possible, have we experienced this before? Is there a memory or an experience associated with this stimuli that we're receiving, right? It could be through our five senses. It could be overstim. It could be a lot of things. The hippocampus sends it to the hypothalamus, and the hypothalamus sends the information to the brainstem. From that point, the brainstem in the central nervous system will send the information in different directions depending on what the body wants to do with the threat. Is this a sympathetic nervous system response in which the body will release adrenaline and cortisol? Fight or flight. We're either fighting the threat or we're fleeing. Or does it go to a parasympathetic nervous system response via the vagus nerve, which is a long wandering nerve and innervates a lot of different, not only visceral organs, but respiration, heart, etc., through the dorsal vagal complex? The parasympathetic nervous system under that situation can shut down the fight or flight. If the organism says, wait, this is a serious threat, everything shuts down, 
So you have fight, flight, or shock, or freeze, so to speak, on the other end of the spectrum. Why do I bring this up? <laughs> Some of you are asking. I didn't come here for a biology lesson. <laughs> so, and there's going to be a test at the end. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I bring this up because, because it's so cool how science catches up with the Bible. They didn't know this at Jeremiah's time. People read it. They don't understand it. But once you understand what the people have been through, once you understand the human body's response to stress and trauma, you even understand lamentations. You understand Jeremiah, the prophets, his um, hyperbolic explanations. In other words, Jesus used hyperbole, uh, sort of an exaggeration to make a point. And he's saying, it's bad here. It is really bad. So we're, we're going through that. And as we start to read, with that information that I just gave you, you can apply it to the scripture and say, oh, wow, this makes sense now. These people are going through trauma. And that is such an important thing to understand, not only to understand lamentations, but to understand ourselves when we, we go through things. You know about the body. You know how God designed, almost like a circuit breaker to shut everything down to prevent a heart attack or uh, an aneurysm or something traumatic in the sympathetic nervous system response. So the parasympathetic can overrule the sympathetic. That being said, before we jump in, this is the second part of the sermon, and we're going to see this in three parts. Now, before we do that, we always, uh, on a little aside, we go through the God's creation of the day or of the week. And this morning, we're going to look at God's creation called the turtle. Now... They seem like simple creatures. You know, they're small. I, I, I'm the kind of person that'll stop and if it's in the middle of the roadway, come on, little guy, let's, let's get to the other side. You're going to get squashed. You know what I'm saying? But the turtle is incredibly complex. If you actually look at their cervical spine, it's in the shape of an S. That's how, we, that's how they can be able to poke their head out and seemingly retract it. We can't do that kind of stuff. We have a nice curve in the three parts of the spine but they have an S at the top. And that's kind of cool. Perhaps the most intriguing thing about the turtle is their shell. Now, contrary to popular belief, a turtle can't just walk out of their shell, kind of like looking like they're in PJs walking around and leave their shell behind. Because their shell is part and parcel to their muscular, well, their skeletal system. So if if you look at the skeleton and you look at the vertebrae in the back and the ribs, they're fused to the shell. The shell at the top is called the carapace, and on the bottom, the bottom part is called the plastron, and it has bridges that connect it. Perhaps the most amazing thing, and this is why, again, we go through this just to prove that a lot of these little creatures are God's beautiful design. Because, as you could imagine, as the turtle goes through life, You know, when I'm breathing up here, I got cartilage and my chest expands. You know, I got my diaphragm going ventrally, but I got my my bones expanding too with my lungs taking in air. The turtle doesn't have that luxury. Everything is so tight. So what does the turtle do? Well, what the turtle does is it uses its musculature to be able to breathe. Its organs and its muscles... And its lungs are connected in certain places. So what the turtle does is can't expand his chest like we can. So it has to breathe ventrally, which means on the underside going down. What happens is its abdominus muscles um, flex to push the 
transverse muscles down, stretching the lungs, causing negative pressure, bringing air in. And the reverse happens to expel air. Now, today, everybody talks about core. When I started working out many years ago, we didn't know anything about a core. But now everybody is into core, right? The, the incredible musculature and intricate under the skin in your abdomen area. I submit to you, if you think you got a bad core, the turtle will probably have you beat. Because the turtle needs a strong core to survive and be able to breathe. Isn't that fascinating? That's pretty cool, huh? So every animal that we do is, is a little bit more fascinating. Okay, let's jump into the scripture. So, <laughs> Lamentations 3. In Darwin's day, he looked at the birds, he looked at a lot of the animals, didn't have the electron microscope. So he didn't understand the complexity of the cell, the DNA structure, and all that other stuff inside of there. So jumping in, now that we have a handle on Lamentations... Chapter 3, I'm going to read a block of it to give you some reference from the last time, but I'm not going to cover a lot of that that we covered last time. I don't want to be repetitive. So 22, Jeremiah is going through a difficult time, and he comes to this turning the corner moment in verse 22. He says, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion. Therefore, I hope in him. And we talked about those three verses and how powerful they were. You know, Jeremiah, in the midst of this chaotic situation, is praising God. Amazing. Verse 25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the justice due a man before the face of the Most High, or subvert a man in his cause the Lord does not approve. Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed? Why should a living man complain, a man for the punishment of his sins? So one out of three is God's sovereignty. Jeremiah puts his trust in the living God. Again, even if he didn't particularly feel that way, even if he was experiencing negative things, he put his trust in the Lord. And we left off with verses 34 through 36. The issue at hand was that the Lord had to take down the political structure of Jerusalem. He had to let that fall apart. Unlike a lot of countries, including our countries, the Lord in this time period, the only real believers were those in Israel. So they represented him. And I've heard the expression, a controlled bankruptcy. This was a controlled takeover that God was trying to allow to happen But the inhabitants resisted God, they resisted his prophets, and it became a disaster. Not not because of God, but because the people were so far estranged from him that their actions caused Nebuchadnezzar's rage and this whole system to collapse. 
So there was an elite, a political class that subverted the God-given rights that God gave to all the people. Right in his law, he spoke about justice. He spoke about if even if you were accused of a murder, you could flee to these cities of refuge and be safe until the court case took place. Everything in God's law was to, was to give equitability and fairness to every single person, from the wealthy to the poor. But this class had grown so against God that they oppressed people, and they didn't get the justice that they were looking for. So you see what's going on. Verses 37 through 39, again, it's more about this situation that did, did the people not think, especially those in leadership, that God was going to allow this system to come apart, the posh life that the elites lived. And there's something about mankind, men and women, and you see this when somebody's in political office for a very long time. Sometimes they'll come in worth a few hundred thousand and they leave multimillionaires. You know, they, they, be, they kind of feel like it's their, their right to rule over people. And the corruption, kind of the power goes to their head. So we see it everywhere, including in our own country. So God allowed this situation where there was a pretty much collapse of this elite political class. And there's an expression that you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament is that you reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Sometimes a person dies and you find out some horrible thing about them, some horrible thing that they did to somebody or a group of people, and, and there's an anger. Where's the justice? Oh, let me tell you something. It didn't escape God's notice. If we don't see the justice here, we will see it in the afterlife, that's for sure. So reaping what we've sown. Um, in this situation, King Zedekiah was the last king of Jerusalem, and he was a very evil man. Because of his actions, because of his abuse of the prophet Jeremiah, because of um, the abuse of the godly people, uh, he, he ended up reaping what he sowed. Like a, a corrupt politician, Zedekiah gets on a horse with, his, with his, his guys, and they try to flee the city while it's being in, in, taken over by the Babylonians. This is all history. Babylonians catch up with them, bring him back to the city, and they hold high court. Now, this, he's, a, he's an evil man, but the, what happened is horrible. But it just was a result of his own sin. So what the Babylonians do is, and they were so cruel, there was no Geneva Convention, uh, they killed Zedekiah's sons right in front of him, and then they gouged his eyes out and put him in prison, and that's where he languished and died. So the last thing that he saw was the execution of his own sons. Very sad. So he ended up getting justice in this world, um, and I don't know if he repented before he died. That's only God knows those things. And the question for us is, you know, so we talked about history. We talked about the human body. The question for us is, we might not have any power in this world, but are we... What are we sowing? What are we sowing every day? Because we will reap what we sow. The Bible's very clear on that. God promised justice, and justice did take place, but God also promised better days to come. And that took place too, by the way. Jerusalem was completely rebuilt. All the rubble was cleaned up. Um, things were growing again. God really blessed Jerusalem after this national repentance under the Persian Empire. R very cool thing to watch in history. Verse 40. I love reading history books that aren't Christian and seeing it's, it's the exact parallel to what the Bible says. History's history. You can't, you can lie, but people can find out what actually did happen through archaeology and hagiography and, and manuscripts and all that other kind of stuff. So 
continue on, verse 40, second section, he says, Jeremiah says, let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed. We've willfully sinned and rebelled. You have not pardoned. Now, this is prior to repentance, by the way. Speaking about God, you have not pardoned. I would say yet, right? In italics. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and not pitied. You have covered yourself with a cloud that prayer should not pass through. You have made us an offscouring and refuse in the midst of the peoples. All of our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare have come upon us. Desolation and destruction. My eyes overflow with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Jeremiah is the right man for the job because he didn't act like a tough guy. He didn't act like he was better than the people. He cried. He saw the suffering of his people and he cried. Um, You know, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's been known by that moniker for thousands of years. He continues, my eyes flow and do not cease without interruption till the Lord from heaven looks down and sees my eyes bring suffering to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. My enemies without a cause hunted me down like a bird. They silenced my life in the pit. They threw stones at me. The waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. So two out of three is Jeremiah's call to repentance. And again, you may hear a street preacher on a soapbox in Manhattan. Repent, repent. That word just means to change. It means to turn to the living God. And there's really degrees of repentance. For somebody who's lived a wicked lifestyle, when they repent, that's a big thing. It's a complete 180-degree turn from their self-directed evil to actually turning to God. And that's the beauty of the cross. Jesus allows repentance. He allows anybody who's done any horrible thing to turn to the living God and now start to follow him. However, we as Christians, I repent right? We repent when we do something wrong, even as believers and we sin, you know, for some reason, I don't know, it's just a time thing. Usually, well, if something really convicts me, I'll repent when it happens. But before I go to bed, I, I just evaluate my day. You know, what is it that I have to give to the Lord? What did I do? What did I do that was displeasing to him? So repentance is an interesting thing. And depending on who it is, there's, there's degrees of repentance, Somebody coming to the Lord today, maybe, for the first time, that's a big change. You know, it's a big change to now all of a sudden start walking and turning to God. So this this tragedy and even today, politicians, right, they have a solution. Every solution for why society is crumbling except for God. Some do, but most don't. You know, they'll pass another law. You know, we have a quick news cycle. So whenever there's a tragedy, let's, let's pass a quick law, make our constituents happy, and then move on to the next news cycle. But a lot of things that cause tragedy, hate, shootings, I mean, there just was another one recently. There is a, a root, there's a spiritual taproot in our country that's causing these things to happen. Decades ago, kids brought rifles to school legally. For target practice. you imagine that today? They'd be arrested and thrown in jail. Because society has changed. The gun hasn't changed. People have changed. And our politicians refuse to use or consider repentance as one of the things that is going to make an actual difference in our society. We know as believers when we read the scripture that repentance is important. 
right? Um, Jonah goes to a, a Nineveh. And these people were horrible. But the king proclaims a fast and, and they have sackcloth and ashes on their head. And the majority of the people repent. And the nation out actually starts now to prosper. So it's not unheard of. You know what? I, one of the things I pray for at night or during the day or whenever I pray, uh, I pray, Lord, for a great revival in, in the United States. We need it. We need a revival. So Jeremiah knew this. We know it. Right? We know what the, what the answer is. Verses 40 through 42 are very powerful. This is a, a self-examination, right? a confession. And people have questions. Well, what is confession? Is that like the confessional booth? What does that word mean? The word in Greek is homologeo, which literally means it's a compound word. It means same word. What confession is, is we read We hear a preacher, we read the word, the Holy Spirit convicts us of something, and we're saying the same word that God says about a particular situation. Lord, am I doing the right thing? Or, you know, I want to confess. What am I confessing? I'm agreeing with God, homologeo, that my lifestyle is wrong. I'm going in the wrong direction. I want to give it to you, Lord. I want to repent. You see how these things start to work together? In 1 John 1, 9... It says, if we confess our sins, he, who's he? The Lord. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So who do we confess to? Not a man, not me, not a priest. We confess to God himself. Look at the context of that scripture. Who is he? Right? The, the priesthood um, in the Old Testament was, was pretty much on its way out. It was almost non-existent. And any priesthood today in Christianity supposedly didn't exist yet. So we're in a period where there's no priesthood. So who are you going to confess to? Well, the Bible makes it clear. We're to confess to God right? in our quiet time, in our time where there's not distractions. And we actually are starting to, to talk to, to the Lord and, and confess to him what we've done. We've asked for forgiveness, and he's a forgiving God. And this is a tough thing, I tell you, in our culture, because our culture is all about self-aggrandizement. Turn on the TV, look at the magazines, the famous magazines, people, self, us. It's all about how great we are. You know, don't let anybody change you. Okay, but let the Lord change you. Because that change is very important. So self-examination versus our culture is self-aggrandizement. And that's why we come to church on a Sunday, to get out of the pollutions and the corruption of the world and get into a place where we're actually going to study God's word and try to understand his heart, what he wants for us. And I just want to say this as well. There's two extremes. There's the person who never thinks they do anything wrong. That's that's an extreme. That's not a good position, no matter what it is. They'll cut everybody off in their life because they're never wrong. Then there's the person on the other extreme, this is just as equally dysfunctional, is that they don't forgive themselves. That God, Christ, died on the cross for their sins. They've accepted Christ, they've repented, and they still kick themselves every day. Why would you hold yourself in a prison that God has freed you from? So I want to encourage you with that, right? My brother in the mental health profession, and you're scattered throughout this church. You know, you, you, you give it up to God and he cast it into the sea of forgetfulness. So why are we remembering it? Why are we writing it down? Why do we beat ourselves up? Don't do it. 
Give it to the Lord and let it go. Move on. Enjoy your life, right? So these things happen. Verse 41, it tells us to lift up our hearts and our hands to God. Now, this is interesting because, actually, I just had somebody ask me this this week. You know, um, why don't we kneel to pray? Can we, you can do whatever you want. The actual position of your body when you pray is not the important part. It's really the position of your heart. He says, lift up our hands and our hearts. And I explain, explain that. And every, there's a lot of things that people do uh, across Christianity, which is fine. It's, you know, style of worship is different. Style of position of your body when you pray. As long as your heart is lifted up. As long as your heart is, is open to God. You know, some people do it on their knees. A.W. Tozer I would have neck problems because I got some herniations, but I can't sleep with my face to the ground. But A.W. Tozer, if you read his books, he would pray, prostrate his face. He, he would be on the ground with his hands spread out, and he'd pray there for hours. I would, I would get up with whiplash. I mean, I, but God bless him, A.W. Tozer. I mean, he was so devoted to God. But it doesn't mean that if you pray the Old Testament, the Jews would stand there and they would lift up their hands to heaven and pray to God. Neither way is wrong. Because what, what really is important is the position of our heart. Because we could pray a phony prayer like the Pharisees did. We can pray in front of somebody and, and memorize and practice the prayer and make it sound really good. So everybody's like, wow, that person's really spiritual. But it's just a show. So it really depends, not on our body position, but it depends on where our heart is with the Lord. Amen? Good stuff. Verses 43 through 45, um, what happens here is this, this sinful condition of the city, it was a willful thing. It was a, an estrangement of God. And it started to reveal the weakness of sinful human flesh without God's protection. He's speaking about the prayer not passing through. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. You know, this is a, a lifestyle bent on tuning God out. And, and this was me before I got saved as a young man. I just only prayed when I, was a, I thought something was going to happen or I was in danger. And I don't know how many prayers actually got through because my heart wasn't right because I lived for myself and I only called on him when I was in trouble. And then I get mad when he didn't bail me out. But what did I expect? You know what I'm saying? I, I had no relationship with him, right? So we, we look at these things. Verses 46 through 51, again, the, the vulnerable position of Jerusalem and the enemies could smell the fear. Some of the surrounding nations, they, they could see that Jerusalem didn't have the strength, almost like Samson, if I could make an analogy, right? Samson, when he was um, serving the Lord, the guy was impenetrable. The guy was superhuman. Nope, they, nobody could beat him, even with an army. But when he forsook God and went his own way, that's when he started to lose. And Jerusalem was the same way as the city. They were almost had this force field, almost, <laughs> it's an analogy, that God put around the city to protect them. But they, as a, as, a, as a whole, forsook God and his ways. And now you start to see the neighbors, you know, the Edomites and these different groups that took advantage of their weakened position. So he speaks about that. And 50 through, 52 through 54, not only is he crying, which there's nothing wrong with crying. There's not, nothing wrong. Have you heard the expression, men don't cry? Men do cry sometimes. You know, we... You know, we have problems sometimes. We all do. 
Um, some of these things that we say in our society, are, I think, are counterproductive. Sometimes a good cry is cathartic. It actually feels good physically. You ever see, I, I mean, counseling, you know, somebody will just, they'll just go and they'll just cry and cry and they're like, oh, I feel better. <laughs> and that's, that's a common thing. It's a cathartic. It's a release. So he's, he's upset um, emotionally inside um, and he feels Jeremiah as if he's at the lowest point that he's ever been probably. And listen, you might have come into this church feeling that way. And now you can identify with one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. Amen? So it's okay. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love us, although we make that connection and it's not a proper connection to make. It just means that we're going through something. Jesus even told us that we would have trials in this world. But when he comes again, all those things are going to be a thing of the past. It's not going to happen anymore. So, but God hears, you know, and, that, and that's the consolation that he knows that God hears. And God doesn't enjoy seeing us suffer any more than we enjoy suffering, you know. And if you look at it, there's really a spiritual root to all suffering. Let's just continue on here. Um, one of the things that blessed Jeremiah was, and, and you see it in his writings, that he knew not only did God see, but God heard. He knew that even if it was going to be a while before he got some relief, that God was aware of the situation. Now, there is a form of belief system still in this country called deism. The deist believes that God created everything and, I don't know, maybe went on a vacation, maybe had other universes to create, and he just kind of let everything kind of go and play out and he just would disappear so you call on him and he might be busy with another galaxy somewhere else but that's not reflected in scripture that's actually a, a cold belief system it's actually sad you know what, what's the sense in praying what's the sense in having a relationship if god is this this cosmic manipulator that creates stuff and disappears so we know from this writing we know from in the looks so he sent his son down on the earth right fully god fully man to save our sins. So we know that that's not true. He is concerned with his creation. God wants to be a part of the solution. But again, in the case of Jerusalem, he gave them free will and they chose to, to walk away from him. This is a hard book to teach because it's, it's heavy. This isn't the type of book that you teach if you want to build a church and double the size of your people in the seats and, you know, double the size of your uh, tithes and stuff. This isn't the type of book to teach. But at Calvary Chapel, we preach all the Bible. It's just where we are. We were in Romans before this. So it's, it's a heavy book, but it's something that we need to understand. I got to tell you that my experience in this congregation is that many of you have come sporadically to say, the book is ministering to me because I am going through a hard time. It's good to know that somebody that we revere, like Jeremiah, um, went through this time too. You know, he knows what it felt like. So it was, they were vulnerable. It was uncomfortable. But let me read to you Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Jeremiah 29. And this is God's heart. So Lamentations is written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is written by Jeremiah. And when you read Jeremiah 29, 11, God speaking through the prophet, God's saying to the people, I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Now, God is revealing his innermost heart, his innermost thinking processes, his emotions, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you, and you will seek me. 
and find me when you search for me with all your heart. So God is saying, regardless of what even happens next, he's always the first cause agent in our relationship. It's always God reaching out to us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God didn't wait for us to fix the problem because we couldn't. He sent his son. God reveals to Jeremiah, let me tell you what my heart is when I think of you. It's always of good thoughts. I want you to be successful. I want you to be balanced. I want you to to be with me, the Lord is saying all these things. He goes, I'm going to do these things first, and then you're going to respond to me, and you're going to seek me. And when you seek me with a whole heart, you'll be found by me. And that's a promise to everybody here this morning. Maybe you walked in here and you don't know. You don't know this whole Christianity thing. You heard things here and there, but you're you're really not sure. Maybe you're just testing the waters. But let me tell you something. If you are, you're here for a reason. Because God is calling you as well. So, good stuff here. There's always a silver lining when it comes to God. Last few verses, verse 55, he continues... He says, I called on your name, O Lord, from the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear. From my sighing, from my cry for help, you drew near on the day I called on you and said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded the case from my soul. You have redeemed my life. O Lord, you have seen how I am wrong. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all the schemes against me. The lips of my enemies and their whispering against me all the day. Look at their sitting down and their rising up. I am their taunting song. Repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Give them a veiled heart. Your curse be upon them. Remember, this is the Old Testament. In your anger, pursue and destroy them from under the heavens of the Lord. So three out of three is Jeremiah, for the most part, right, we're reading, if we look at the aggregate of, the, of these scriptures, the main theme and the main thrust is Jeremiah's confidence in God. Even when he says, I'm calling out for justice. I want to see justice done. He still knows that God is a God of justice. Well, God hears me. God sees. God answers me. God's a God of justice. God could be all those things. He's all those wonderful things wrapped up in one. And sometimes when we pray to God, we're frustrated, we're angry, and we pray certain things. And then we, we kind of get over it, and we're feeling a little bit better, or being ministered to, and then we pray something different. So when you look at Jeremiah, he's no different from us. He's no different from us. He's in the depths of despair. We've been in the depths of despair. He's in the storms of life. We've been in the storms of life. Verse 55, he says, I called upon your name from the lowest pit. Well, we've heard that from David in the Psalms, right? This idea of the pit, you know, and and they knew that in, in those days when there was a pit and somebody didn't see it and they fell in it or they were trapping an animal, that was the worst place you could be is in a pit that you can't get out of. So they used that as a, as a metaphor for the, for the difficulty they're in. Sometimes people feel as if they're in a pit. And they're like, I can claw and I can claw and I can't get out of this situation. And most of us have never been in a physical pit, but you've been in a spiritual pit. You've been in an emotional pit. So Jeremiah experienced the same thing that you maybe experienced this year or last year. Hopefully 2020 is a better year. No matter how low we are, God, we're, we're, we're never alone. And if you don't have the assurance of that, you can have that by the end of today. Verse 57. 
I drew near the day I called on you, God, and you said, do not fear. Now, there were times that the prophets would hear an audible voice. There were times that God would speak to them in their conscience, in their heart, that they didn't hear or sense God with their five senses, but God gave them what they needed in that comfort. And what's really cool in the New Testament is that there are times that we sense from the Holy Spirit a calming or a peace washes over. It doesn't happen every day. I'll be the first one to admit that as your pastor. Just because we're in this position, we don't walk on water. Our lives are, uh, are, are, we're not above you, okay? We go through the same thing that you go through. We all have our moments. But in those depths of despair, we have to remember that God is with us. We know that for a fact, right? 1 John 4.18. Another very interesting scripture. He says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. So you almost see this continuum where there's love on one extreme and fear on the other. And when we are not experiencing the love or we're in a bad place, we may end up towards the continuum of fear. But as we get closer to God and he ministers to us, the fear becomes less. It abates. So you see this sliding scale of this continuum between fear and and love. And he says that fear involves torment. Now, in the mental health community, we know that fear and anger are closely uh, associated, that sometimes people walk around angry. They're always angry. At the heart of that person is fear. Nobody wants to be vulnerable, so fear is often covered with anger. Isn't it amazing how we can manipulate our own emotions and then get to a place where we don't even really understand ourselves. We need somebody from the outside to help us to understand. What God wants for us in our life is for us to be made per- perfected in love. That that love, and it doesn't mean that we're always going to be 100% on the love continuum, right? But that he wants us, he would like us more over here. Because his desire, I just read in Jeremiah, is for good things for us. He wants us to, he wants us to have a relationship with with him. He, he wants to, us to receive his love. So he wants us to move out of this, this, this fear and move more into the light, into love. We want to be, if it's a tug of war, we want to be over the center line. We want to be over the pond, right? And stay on this side. A lot of good stuff in the scripture. Verses 58 through 60. We also see this combination. God is pleading his case for his soul, but he's also redeeming his life. Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a rough ministry. You know, he didn't know who he could trust. I mean, he knew he could trust God, but here he is. I don't know. I don't know what was ministry like in the beginning for Jeremiah. God says, tell the people I love them. Okay, Lord, tell the people that, listen, if you just do it this way and just submit to Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to be it's going to be tough, but it, it's going to be a, a positive experience. Okay, Lord, you know, just like when in the beginning, we're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. We want to serve our God. Jeremiah goes to the king and, hey, king, um, God told me this and God told me that. And he starts to get interrupted. He starts to get abused. He starts to get beat. He's thrown into a well. 
because the king had false prophets that were saying, don't listen to him. Everything's going to be fine. They were lying to the king and his court. But the king was not being a spiritual man, and he started listening to the wrong people. Well, there's a lesson for life. Who are we listening to in our lives? Are we listening to people that try to bring us down, that try to get us in trouble, that, oh, no, it's going to be fun. You you see, we're going to do this weekend. Or are we listening to people that want to to ground us, that are are also like-minded Christians that want to lift us up, that want to see the best for us? So Jeremiah goes out there, and he's getting abused by everybody. The king, these are are his his own people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then here comes the Babylonians. They speak a different language. It's a different culture. They become their overlords. Jeremiah can't win. You know what I'm saying? No matter what he did. So he truly, his only friend in the world at one point in time was the living God. It's something that we have to consider. And we don't always get this and understand this until we really dig into the scripture. And say, wow, I never knew that about Jeremiah. I never knew it was such a a tough ministry. Because when people sometimes preach the the scripture, they make everything sound so flowery. And then the people listening think to themselves, well, I could never get into ministry because all those people are perfect. Starting with those in the Bible. And that's just not true. Right? So when you're going through something in your life, don't say, I'm a loser. Because you're not. You're not. Jeremiah had 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 a battle with negative thoughts as well. But God was with him. Amen? So he's saying, you know what, Lord? In my emotional state, you're, you're there. I have to move towards from feelings to faith. And I'm paraphrasing here. Um, in my spiritual state, state, this wasn't even the subject. But he knew that God um, was, took care of his salvation. He knew that there was a good, and that Jesus didn't come yet, okay? He knew that God, just like Abraham, he had faith and he believed that that was going to happen. Um, God pleaded my case for his soul. John three sixteen. we covered that. First John 2. It says that we have an advocate or a defense attorney with the Father who is Jesus. Jesus. As if there was a courtroom. Jesus goes to the Father and says, yeah, I know, my client's guilty. He, he's guilty of sin. What? You're my defense attorney? I got this. I paid for it at the cross. Every single one of those sins that he committed that Joe DeProsimo committed when I was on that cross, all paid for. He's trusted in me, so we're good. Not guilty by decree of the court. Powerful, isn't it? Powerful. Jeremiah. He's, he, again, he wants justice. He's crying out for justice. And God did do it. God didn't play favorites, not with the Israelites, not with the Babylonians. Babylonians went the way of the, of, the, of the Israelites, and he, they had their day too. They were warned, right? So this is a little bit of a learning curve. But understand this, that, folks, we know the truth. We know the truth. When something happens in my life and <laughs> the hippocampus and the amygdala and all that stuff starts to, they start to do their thing, and they start messing with me, my emotions, you know. I, I know, I come to the realization, I know. I haven't been following him for over two decades. Bless you. Jesus blessed you on the cross. Uh, I haven't been following him for almost three decades because for no reason. You know, I was one of those people where I, I grew up in a religion and I came up to a point in my life in my 20s where I just didn't want to follow anything. I saw 
religion is hypocritical. I started buying all these books, all these religious books, pouring through them. I still have them in my library. I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to follow something, I'm going to follow the truth. And you know what? This just makes so much sense. So even in, in my most difficult times, like Jeremiah, even when I'm complaining in prayer and I'm whining to God, I know in my heart of hearts what the truth is. And we can allow our emotions to take over us and play, wreak havoc with our lives. But what we always need to go back to is the truth, is faith, is trust. See, in this church, we don't pretend. You can come in here. You can, come, you can be in here right now and be angry. You could be having a bad day, and it's okay. You could be depressed, and it's okay. But you're here for a reason. Because if nothing else, this book of Lamentations, it's history. It's God's word. It's about the prophet. But there are also applications for your lives and for mine. And, and we're not here for no reason. We didn't see Jeremiah go through this for no reason. As he turned the corner, eventually we have to get to that place and turn the corner too. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.